Hey everybody, welcome back to the third recording of the Two Peas in a Podcast. We've got an additional P here today. Travis Cook Young. Andrea Zillow. Shane Hauser. It's really, it's like we've got a rose between two thorns here. Uh, so uh, for this week's podcast, um, we're coming at you from the, is this the furry lounge or would you call this center studio north? This is a secret spot. It's not secret anymore, <laughs> but it's like there's this ray of sunshine. Yeah, it is quite nice in here. Breeze. Yeah, we've got the clear story windows. <clears throat> we're at the top of the triple height volume. Truly, you the know uh, yeah, it's right, it's right. <laughs> we're at the pinnacle of the Ralph Magic Building. Very popular location for the podcast, the Ralph Magic. Mm. We've come. Uh, yeah, really <laughs> we just hard, can't so. seem to get away. It's can't seem to get like away. Patio. Well, again, though, it's one of those uh, times where it looks like summer but feels like spring for sure outside today. So we are yeah. in the sunshine. Inside. Chasing it and uh, talking schools and prisons. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty exciting stuff. Oh, I'm doing a quick Google search about our author here today. Oh, excellent. Uh, of just reading schools and prisons. This is Amber Wiley Amber we're talking Wiley. about here. Yes. One of the wow ones. Mm. One of the what? <laughs> She's wilding out. Wilding out? Oh, yeah, cool. I don't know. What does that mean? She has her own website, Amber and Wiley. I'm a PhD. Subtitle: Professional Flaneurs. Well, very nice. That's I, a I, word. I once worked as a flaneurs. Did you? Is that like a flan? Probably flaneur? not. You're probably a flaneur. Oh. oh. <laughs> uh, the flaneur was a top-hatted and carried long cane. Mm. She was a dashing young, young gentleman, so she's a gentlewoman. Mm. His literary prowess allowed him to describe and al- analyze social customs, art commerce and politics in the modernizing city. Wow. I feel like we talked about that in like House Meets Paris or something like that. Mm, yeah. Were they Flanners? Probably. The, the Boulevardiers? Yes, the Boulevardiers. <laughs> Very anyway, nice. She is an assistant professor of American studies and associate director of the intergroup relations program at Skidmore College. Oh, wow. Her research is centered on the social aspects of design, architecture as a literal and figural structure of power. Hmm. She focuses on the ways local and national bodies have made the claim for the dominating narrative and collective memory of cities through design and examines how preservation and architecture contribute to the creation and maintenance of the identity and sense of place of a city. Wow. So really on point for uh, where we're at here with history now. Mm -hmm. And this reading itself Mm -hmm. seems to be, uh, again, a bit more contemporary. Um... I don't see an exact date on here, but uh, it does look like we'll be covering some topics that have um, come up in the last 36 months. So, um, you guys ready to jump right into this thing? Let's do it. Fantastic. Uh, okay, so it's titled Schools and Prisons by Amber Wiley. The killings of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamara Rice, and others occurred when these black men and boys encountered police officers operating according to protocols that called for aggressive intervention against not only major crimes, but also small, everyday infractions such as selling loose cigarettes. Order maintenance, policing, including stop and frisk tactics, set up confrontations that sometimes turn more deadly. More often, its impact is less immediate. But by introducing youth and adults into the criminal justice system early and often, this mode of exercising state control over bodies and behavior in urban spaces leads to racially disparate impacts, initiating processes of mass incarceration and what Michael Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. 
These practices have a corollary in schools where order, maintenance, policing, and steep penalties for minor infractions tend to push out students of color, deny them access to education, and in some cases initiate a criminal record that increases their likelihood of subsequent imprisonment. In the context of racial segregation and disparate levels of funding, hallway patrols and strict zero-tolerance discipline lead to suspensions, expulsions, and dropouts. These set up poor black students for incarceration, drawing them into what, one, what has been call, come to be called the school-to-prison pipeline. Oh, me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah we, we'll go by paragraph. <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, education scholar Joan T. Wine writes that with the emphasis on control and obedience that prevails in this context, schools, quote, operate like prisons where students of color, especially those forced to live in poverty by an economic system that demands there be losers, are daily maligned and rigidly controlled as though they were as though they already wore orange jumpsuits. In these schools situated deep in the belly of most cities, the prime attribute desired for their marginalized students is obedience, not academic excellence. Obedience prepares them not just for prisons, but for the military and for low-paying jobs. End quote. The means of bodily and subjective regulation employed in what we might call pipeline schools exemplify some of the disciplinary mechanisms made famous through Michael Foucault's analysis of prisons. Interesting that we'll be reading Paul Foucault oh. after this. Uh, in Discipline and Punishment, The Birth of the Prison from 1979, Foucault noted that prisons were only the most extreme instrument of a broader disciplinary architecture, asking, is it surprising that prisons resemble factories, schools, barracks, hospitals, which all resemble prisons? Schools have a deep history as disciplinary instruments. The normative and regulatory practices embedded in the pedagogy scale up. Schools shape entire populations. We can understand the school-to-prison pipeline as a contemporary moment in a longer history of biopolitical schooling. In many ways, the policies that underlie the school-to-prison pipeline harken back to the civilizing discourse of early educators wanting to assimilate ethnic minorities into mainstream America. Public education in the United States was not considered obligatory upon the founding of the nation. It became a method of assimilation and a framework for teaching civic ideals as the immigrant population began to swell in the 1820s and 1830s, and as ideas of manifest destiny propelled Western expansion and incorporation of new territories and native peoples into the nation. Education scholar Donald Warren explains, quote, Schools represented a means to a greater purpose. They were to harmonize a diverse people, soften their antagonisms, and equip them to function as citizens in a changing society. In pursuing these goals, schooling in all its aspects became civic education. Curriculum, textbooks, teacher selection and preparation, and pedagogy required attention because they affected outcomes. So too did school architecture, classroom furniture, and basic policies on access, attendance, and school finance, the point being to fashion institutions whose effects on children would serve the nation's republican aspirations." Policy-minded educators such as Horace Mann and Henry Barnard uh, systematized and normalized public education by focusing on pedagogy, curriculum, and design. Barnard published 
school architecture, or contributions to the improvements of schoolhouses in the United States in 1854. This survey of school conditions and pedagogical issues across a number of states highlighted the newest designs for schoolhouses and school furniture. The book traced an evolution from simple one-room buildings to edifices that resembled the villas promoted by Andrew Jackson Downing to large civic institutions that resembled castles. School design had become less domestic and more authoritative as it reflected growing civic idealism. So, um, just before we go any further, pedagog, pedagogy, <laughs> pedagogy. What are we talking about here? That's one of those definitions that I need to look up. What are we? Yeah, so like, pedagogy. It, is, but... it refers to uh, the theory and the method of education. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I'd heard this before, but. Yeah, it's sure. one of those words. I'm like, yeah, I know what that is, and then yeah. I try to explain. And like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> but so, Shane, he actually knows what it is. That's that nice. came from his brain. Yeah, that's not fantastic. the internet. I can, so I can reading so far, um, yeah, obviously we're looking at just how there's this idea of uh, kind of social control that they're trying to build into people's lives from kind of womb to tomb, like from the very beginning. <laughs> you're, <tomb. laughs> you're getting this whole uh, uh, being put into this method, and it's interesting here that they've noted uh, low-paying jobs in the military as well being these kind of structured things and um, I don't know you guys but I got to go to a lot of schools growing up and uh, <laughs> a lot of different uh, types of places and luckily I was never in these kind of like cliche um, really horrible schools that you hear about or like um, I guess so I was just lucky that way to just yeah, have a good nice place I, I mean I don't know if Canada has as much of a disparity as like the United States. Right. I know right. that like in the states, schools are very much funded by the taxpayers of, of the local area. Right. So yeah. Like, if you live in a nice if, neighborhood, if you're, poor, you're gonna go you there. live in a poor neighborhood. You go into a crappy school. Right. Cycle continues. Right. Um, that being said, though, uh, the middle school I did go to in Houston, which was in a nice oh, community, you, in a nice I place. Didn't yeah. Um, it was yeah, it was still really nice, but there was still. Um, you know, there's metal detectors everywhere. There's police in the school, even though there's nice. no incidents here. And uh, and yeah, it's just kind of interesting to hear them talk about this idea. With, uh, it's especially interesting schools, when yeah. the comparison between a school and a prison or some other kind of institution that needs to be protected or controlled in that way becomes so clear. Mm. You know, something like a metal detector. Right. Yeah, it's not like a, a staff, uh, you know, meeting where they're talking about possible things. It's just yeah. like, uh, okay, here you are. You're in danger. And uh, well, that, and, and that's, that's the interesting part of it is that there's almost an implication that something dangerous could happen at any time. Yeah. Right. Even if that's not the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Very nice. So um, at this point in the reading, uh, there's several uh, illustrations and we'll let you guys just kind of check those out um, and we're going to jump right back in here on uh, page six. It's mine. Let's go. Yeah. Um, so students in these classrooms formed a captive audience. Schools design promoted utilitarian concerns for order, control, and restriction of movement. Tables, chairs, and desks bolted to the floor discouraged lateral communication and other forms of community among students. In a phrase that was used widely before the Civil War, Warren notes the schools were to be efficient and effective. They must be husband-human and material resources, and students must learn. What do they mean, 
husband human? <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, this is pre-Civil War, which is not a term you hear very often referred to like this popular phrase. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Oh, they must husband human and material resources. Oh, it's in husbanding. It's like join. They must accept it. Is that what husbanding is? Uh, it yeah. means, uh, like, yeah, like to... Animal like, husbandry? Like animal it's like animal husbandry, <laughs> I guess. Somehow. Yeah, yeah. Like kind of... Supporting, I guess. Bring things Maybe together. Gathering you know? them or something? I don't know. Maybe gathering. Is Connecting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sure. Something like that. We'll go with that. Human husbandry. Um, Anyways. Um, education for African Americans was minimal in the antebellum period. But after the emancipation, the Freedom Men's Bureau set up educational institutions, mainly in the South. Native Americans were sent to boarding schools in increasing numbers by the late 1800s as national expansion westward continued to encroach on their lands. Large waves of immigrants from Italy and Ireland in the late 19th century, meanwhile propelled by propelled Anglo-Saxon Protestant fears about the national league, language, culture, and polity polity like politeness i guess oh education for negroes natives italians and irish taught the values of the dominant political class and assimilating students into the status quo this approach exemplified what paulo Freire would later describe in pedagogy of the oppressed from 1970 as a colonialist system that addresses students by treating them as unfortunates and by presenting for their emulation models from among the oppressors. Schools were places where young members of these diverse populations left behind the comforts, familiarity, and customs of their home life, family, and cultural tradition, traditions. They normalized a narrow canon of thought, behavior, dress, and language while pursuing divergence from cultural hegemony. Is that how you say that? Hegemony. hegemony. Yeah, that's hegemony. Which is... Another one of those things that I think I know and I can't explain. Um, it's referring to the sort of like dominant cultural, uh, let's just look it up, <laughs> leadership or dominance, especially by one state or social group uh, well, over others. Well, guys, Shane has this app where he can just like look up a word that he highlights. That's pretty cool. It's just... What's the app called, Shane? Why don't we see if it's we can get them sponsoring the podcast? It's something it's on It's just built into a Mac. Every Mac can do this. Oh, wow. Well, I have a crappy PC. <laughs> Sorry, so. Well. <laughs> uh, so anyways. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so they're normalizing a narrow canon of thought, behavior, dress, and language while punishing divergence from cultural hegemony at times through corporal discipline. This is very Foucault- uh, our other reading is going to kind of talk about this. I don't know if everybody remembers the reading from last semester mm. mm -hmm. that talks about this, ties it all together. Um, this was particularly the case in many of the Indian boarding schools throughout the nation. Richard Henry Pratt derived the pedagogical aims of these schools from his military training in a prison experiment. Pratt believed that Native Americans principally lived a savage and uncivilized life, but could be saved through education. He had instructed Native American prisoners of war at Fort Marion in St. Augustine, Florida, several of whom went on to study at Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute, which was established in 1868 by the Freedmen's Bureau to instruct emancipated slaves. In 1879, Pratt subsequently founded the Carlisle Indian Industrial School 
in the military barracks in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. John Dewey would argue against such controlled, restrictive, and authoritarian environments in The School and Society and Democracy and Education, an Introduction to Philosophy of Education, uh, both books from uh, the very early 20th century. Uh, Dewey promoted experimental, exper experiential learning and freedom of movement as a means for teachers to better understand the individuality of their pupils. Uh, in his view, restricted classrooms implied an artificial uniformity that was harmful to the learning process. Yeah. What role does architecture play in the contemporary biopolitics of schooling? In building the school-to-prison pipeline, public schools are still very much normative spaces, instruments for instilling conformity, obedience, and control in pupils, rather than pro promoting Deweyan values of exploration and self-expression. This is particularly true for schools with a high percentage of Black and Latino children, as these policies affect ethnic minorities, students with learning disabilities, LGBTQ students, and the poor, especially heavily. School design, in an effort to be both efficient and economic, reinforces pedagogy oriented toward order and discipline. An increased culture of fear in educational facilities across the nation has also led to the criminalization of the school environment. One path into this question of architecture's role in the biopolitics of schooling is to consider two successive buildings that housed Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. One design, completed in 1977 by Bryant & Bryant, a black architecture firm founded by two brothers trained at Howard University's School of Architecture, was an open-plan, high-rise high school constructed as part of the rebuilding of Washington, D.C. neighborhoods devastated in the 1968 riots. At the time of its completion, this brutalist building, then the most expensive public school built in the D.C. metropolitan area, was lauded for its innovative design. The project was a breakthrough commission for Bryant & Bryant, and the comprehensive high school and community center was the largest prime architect engineer design commission ever awarded to an African-American-owned firm. It was demolished after the construction of its replacement. The successor design, completed in 2013 by the architecture firms Perkins Eastman and Moody Nolan, is a handsome and aspirational building of brick and glass. Nonetheless, it evokes Joan T. Wynn's assertion that the school-to-prison pipeline is in reality a prison-to-prison -prison pipeline. Ooh. Security and surveillance practices associated with order maintenance or with order maintenance schooling are an integral part of daily life at the new Dunbar and they were part of the architectural brief for the building's design. There are many common positive attributes to the designs of both the 1977 and 2013 Dunbar High School facilities. Both employed a skylit atrium to flood the interior spaces with natural light. The former did this within the academic wing itself, while the latter building's atrium is part of the entry sequence. Both buildings offered immense square footage to the student body. The 1977 Dunbar was a whopping 340,000 square feet and served 1,800 students. The 2013 version is 280 square feet but only served 600 students. Mm. Hmm. In an effort to break up the massive scale of the buildings and to personalize the space for students, both the 77 and 2013 concepts employed the use of academic houses. The 2013 plan calls them academies to create a sense of belonging. 
The attributes are testaments to the aspirational nature of, of school design itself, and in both cases, architects took care in attempting to respond to students' environmental and psychological needs. So it's kind of interesting um, that uh, in the same place, um, you know, however many years, 40 years later or whatever, that they um, built the same, you know, they were about the same school. Uh, I think the idea that what I found interesting there was that they really do give them per student, uh, like it almost doubled the square footage yeah, in the huge. in the new one from you know, about twenty to forty. Um, yeah, this must be these these really large spaces. So if they're going to that large size, to me it doesn't seem like you know budget's a real constraint here in their design when they're trying to make these things like prisons. You know, when I think mm. of something institutional, um, I kind of think of it as being. You know simple plain and, and almost inhumane and I associate those buildings with industrial buildings or kind of storage or just you know kind of pushing the product through mm. as opposed to something that I would consider to be nice has you know more consideration of how it's actually inhabited and things like this so um, yeah I, just thought it I was think neat, yeah. I think something interesting would be uh, so we know that there's more space per student be curious to see how that relates to usable workspace, yeah, academic space. Right. How does that compare to classroom sizes? Uh, how does that, what does that actually mean? Because right. that no, doesn't absolutely. tell us yeah. anything. Like where is, the, where is the space that the students are using this? Is right. it uh, eaten up in these kind of common areas that are more impressive for people coming to the school? Or are they actually used by the students? Or is there mm. just like, you know, a uh, 100,000 square foot teacher lounge somewhere in there <laughs> yeah. with, you know, a uh, swimming pool and a roller coaster? Yeah, it looks One like we'll be getting into that a little bit. We've got some floor plans here, too. Okay. Excellent. So... All right. Carrying on. Is that you, yep. Shane? Your turn? Yeah. Uh, oh, they're going to explain it to us, I think. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, sharp differences in the plans, however, are signs that schooling and architecture at Dunbar shifted from a Dewey-like model to one focused on hierarchy, policing, and order maintenance. The 1977 building employed open classrooms on tiered mezzanines, while the current plan segregates different subjects through an L-shaped footprint composed of arts and recreation in one wing and classrooms in the other, arrayed along double-loaded corridors. Like many urban high schools with majority-minority populations, Dunbar today employs methods for enforcing order during the school day that promote obedience. A recent architectural record uh, an article describing the entry sequence paints an incomplete picture. Quote, you ascend the broad steps to the entrance. Walking into a large skylit atrium, you find floor-to-ceiling windows opening to vistas of the surrounding residential neighborhood. End quote. Between the broad entrance steps and the atrium, however, is a vestibule where the student is greeted by metal detectors, x-ray machines, and video surveillance. Additionally, video surveillance is omnipresent through the school itself from the double-loaded corridors to the quiet reflective spaces situated with cozy armchairs overlooking glass expanses that reveal the neighborhood to the students. Many articles about the 2013 design highlight the fact that the school is open, light, and airy with an abundance of wall space dedicated to fenestration. These considerations certainly give an impression of open civility to the outside world. In these moments that could truly be beautiful and reflective for students, there's always an indication of mistrust often felt by the presence of video surveillance. The school environment has been criminalized. Hmm. Yeah. Like, video surveillance is a really odd thing, right? Because it, uh, especially in the public, 
I mean, I guess we don't really consider school. It's a public school, but I guess the way I feel when I see a camera um, is not that really sense of uncomfortability. It's more kind of knowing that there's this bit of a presence there. I mean, I'm not getting yeah. up to no good, typically. Um, but when I see a sign that has that warns me that camera surveillance is happening there, or there's cameras in the area, uh, that really makes me feel like I'm in a dangerous place. Right? You know, it's mm. just kind of, I don't know. Any opinions? Interesting. Options? Oh, I'm just looking at, they don't, I don't think they have the floor plans of the new building. They have the ones of the old building. And I don't know, I'm assuming that if the old building was brutalist, it was probably dark inside. Mm. And so it's like, maybe that's why they're sort of emphasizing... Well, there's this giant atrium in the middle of it, yeah, right? And they were true. terraced off there, so. That'd be cool. But yeah, it is kind of uh, the old one. It's uh, It's got some funky shapes to it. It's kind of got these, like, octagon. Yeah, it does. It definitely sort of... looks like a brutalist plant, sure. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what the dark part is. Is that, like, double height or the roof or something? Well, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm guessing, oh, that's third floor yeah we're just looking at obviously a little chunk of it because they must teach more things than just cafeteria and spanish <laughs> um, so although in the perfect world what more would you need um yeah no i'm not sure what that hatching there is either but uh, but interesting plants so uh yeah. yeah check them out and then we've got a couple of pictures of what looks to be the new school which with all the boring. security yeah that's uh, uh that's definitely not very inviting. Like, I can't imagine coming through that. Well, actually, you could. You could imagine that being, like, this threshold that you pass through every day where now you enter into the system of, like, oppression or, you know, or um, I would see the metal detectors are really, like, a, yeah, you're within a dangerous space or something like that. Mm. Obviously, like a prison, which is what we're talking about. There are some photos of the old school further down mm. um, that are very interesting. Oh, yeah. That's looking I imagine pretty... we'll get to them. Yeah, where, where am I? It's my turn. Um, we are, oh, here we are. Yeah. Beginning in the 1990s, control and conformity became ritualistic, and security and surveillance became pervasive. The practice of security became a formalized, tedious, and dehumanizing ceremony, ceremony not unlike what air travelers experience in the post-9-11 milieu. Some public schools adopted strict uniform policies. Students were required to carry see-through backpacks and walk through metal detectors on a daily basis. And can you imagine see-through backpack? Like my backpack is such a mess. I don't want anybody seeing it. It's like I think they're actually coming back. Like not just like clear, clear see-through backpacks, but like actually, you yeah. like that? <laughs> yeah, I was about too. It's like, you could show off how it organized. Well, yeah. I mean, I like it not as an instrument of oppression. No, yeah, <laughs> just like a style choice. Yeah. It just feel like plasticky though. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's like a new Raph Simmons one. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Anyway, uh, ad administrators introduced police and school security officers. This trend was rising even before the school massacre at Columbine in 1999. But as school shootings have become more common, school safety measures have grown more complex. As John W. Whitehead, founder of the Rutherford Institute, states, schools aiming for greater security transform themselves into quasi-prisons, complete with surveillance cameras, metal detectors, police patrols, zero-tolerance policies, lockdowns, drug-sniffing dogs, and strip searches. 
The District of Columbia Public School System employs both Metropolitan Police Officers and Security Officers who, walk, her, bleh, <laughs> who work for the Metropolitan Police District through contract, and all but two of the middle schools and high schools have metal detectors. Working with Critical Exposure, a not-for-profit that teaches young people how to use photography to advocate for change in their schools, students in the District of Columbia High Schools describe the impact that some of these measures have on their educations. At Dunbar, measures such as these are overlaid onto more traditionally panoptic passive surveillance mechanisms. Project manager David Shirley of Perkins Eastman observed that the, buildings is, that the building is organized spatially around the key sight lines such as those that allow assistant principals to monitor corridors through the glass walls of their offices. Shiri noticed, noted that the firm had taken pains to promote passive rather than active security measures so that when you walk through, there's not a sense of, I'm being watched all the time. If we can kind of remove that idea, then you can, kind, then you can remove one half of what some call the prison mentality. During the design of the current Dunbar High School, what Sherry calls the prison mentality was frequently associated with the building it replaced. More broadly, when I conducted research for my dissertation, Concrete Solutions, Architecture of Public High Schools During the Urban Crisis, the school as prison metaphor came up countless times. I was investigating the motivations behind brutalist high school design in segregated black communities in three cities, Atlanta, Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C. Contemporary criticisms of the buildings were directed at the seemingly impenetrable exteriors that offered little in the way of pedestrian-level engagement with the street, few windows, and blocky sculptural masses of buildings that did not respond to their neighborhood context. What else were these buildings besides prisons? My dissertation research revealed that the buildings were not designed to punish students or prepare them for penitentiary life. Quite the opposite. Educational policymakers, architectural consultants, planners, school boards, and community groups invested in alleviating problems of concentrated poverty, social inequity, and urban unrest worked in tandem to push the institution of education toward a more inclusive and inspiring condition. They saw the neighboring er, they saw the neighborhood school as an anchor institution for not only education but also neighborhood improvements in the form of social, cultural, and recreational activities. I've written elsewhere about the construction and design of Dunbar as part of a shift in black political empowerment manifest in a new attitude toward the built environment. The reappropriation of African-American history and culture, part and parcel of the black power movement, was exemplified by a new vision for the future based on citizen participation, autonomous neighborhoods, and avant-garde solutions to the problems that plague black communities and cities. These solutions included the creation of large-scale modern urban high schools that were meant not only to educate, but also to stimulate stagnant or declining black urban centers like Le Droit Park, Bloomingdale, the U Street Corridor, and Shaw, historically black neighborhoods that Dunbar served. The Dunbar High School, built in 1977, reflected a softer vision, version of disciplinary design than prevails today. In its design, the need to control student behavior was substantially tempered by countervailing aspirations for empowerment and constructive engagement. Sightlines such as those in today's Dunbar, which replaced the 1977 Brutalist building, likewise embedded passive surveillance into schooling. 
Bryant and Bryant considered themselves sensitive humanists whose work reflected a design empathy constant with the environment and people to be served. The open plan vision of education at Dunbar was inspired by, in part by Dewey's vision of responsive and democratic education. Experiential learning was a primary concern in the design of the 1977 Dunbar High School. The curriculum embraced the societal and cultural interests of the students. Afrocentricity was introduced into a curriculum that was previously based on a strict collegiate pre uh, preparatory model. Hope for the open plan classroom rested on the fact that the barriers among administrators, teachers, and students, so long normalized in a rigid hierarchy, would be eliminated along with classroom walls. Freedom and individuality would form in both pedagogy and learning spaces. The design was shaped in part by the concept of defensible space, developing just a few years earlier by architect Oscar Newman. By eliminating hallways, the open plan prevented students from roaming during class in unappropriated corridors. The plan allowed for countless sight lines from one communally appropriated space to another so that administrators could observe students' actions on mezzanines. These passive mechanisms of surveillance and territorialization were geared at supporting the goal of self-actualized learning in an open environment. That takes me back there, Shane, when you were talking about the um, unappropriated corridors. Mm. So I used to love just kind of walking around when I was supposed to be in class and just mm -hmm. being around school and all these things. Yeah, yeah, geez, unappropriated corridors. It's like some great places i feel like there's some hangouts too like oh you know in the ninth grade or whatever we would hang out at the like such and such hallway upstairs right. or whatever and it's kind of like your spot yeah you get yeah. these little uh <laughs> pockets of of places where when they're talking about this big openness you do think of the way that uh like prison um wards are laid out where they really do have this kind of all this open space in the center and these kind of cells coming off it and uh and yeah and the panopticon obviously mm. But I guess they're, they're arguing that it feels like less like people are watching you when there's... Yeah, but it, but it also it completely discourages any of that behavior yeah. because there's just nowhere to hide. Yeah. It's like, we're going to eliminate we're gonna eliminate all the hiding spots, but no one's watching you, so don't worry. But it's almost as if the there's a difference between... So when you don't have the double-loaded corridor and you have sort of maybe another classroom that might see you if you're wandering around. Mm. It's less so this exertion of uh, an authoritative power. Like, for example, a teacher coming out because you're wandering the halls, coming out and yelling at yeah. you. It's more so a social contract between you and the other students, as right. well as the teachers. It's like, okay, all these people are learning right now. Maybe that's what I should be doing. It right. might be more like that. So, I mean, there's still obviously the idea of trying to get these people to do something which is educational. Mm. But there's sort of a, a way of integrating them or something like that that's happening. Right. I don't know. No, I, I like what you're saying there because if you just flip that with prisons, right, and, and think about the idea of not so much that there being these open spaces in prisons, but like how scary a prison would be that had like sneaky hallways yeah, and stuff and all the things that would get going on in there would just be very violent and uh or not positive let's say it's almost you like know? challenging you to i don't know do something in that space right yeah but yeah. then also but don't no, because exactly. we're watching you yeah 
exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we think that you're going to use us to do something bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I like it. Which we're kind of in one of these sneaky spaces right now. <laughs> we're allowed to be. But there's no, it's not like a weird corridor, though. It's like a beautiful open space. I think, sure. you know what it is? It's, mm. it's that the school's hallways during class time, it's a weird place. It's it a is liminal a weird space. Yeah. It's somewhere where you're not supposed to be. It's somewhere where time has a weird effect mm. because you're not supposed to be there. Yeah. You know, some schools make you get like, a hall pass a hall or pass. something. Yeah, no, exactly, because that's yeah. how much you're not supposed to be there at that point <laughs> right. in time. Yeah, yeah. Like, you are in a in a certain sense trapped in that classroom for that period of time. Yeah. Right. There's something. Well, the thing once is, you go to well, university, you realize how weird that is. Right. And I guess the thing is, um, you don't realize it as much, I guess, when you are uh, like a teenager or whatever. But like these teachers are really responsible for your well-being, right? You're a child in this sort of a place. And, uh, and you know, they've got to try and control that uh, as part of their job. I couldn't imagine my job being to educate and to, like... Well, there is something weird about custody responsibility. Right, yeah. You know, and that's the same, yeah. In a certain sense, that's imposing a certain kind of... that Imposing that responsibility on teachers mm-hmm. is kind of an interesting thing, too, because yeah. it does take some of the agency away from students even even if we're talking about high school a point at which they should be starting to really kind of self-regulate a little bit better they should be becoming a lot more accountable for their their right right but it's it's got a bit of that like how this relates to the hospitals too and how the doctor needs to be like seeing all the patients teacher kind of has to be seeing the students right it's like making the the architecture is making the job easier for the teachers yeah. to take care of that function so they can perhaps focus more on the educational yeah, maybe. aspects of why they're right there. Maybe? No. Mm-hmm. Where, what page were we on? That's a good question. <laughs> we're on page 17. 17. <laughs> Shane, keep us on track. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, it's my turn? It is. Okay. Sorry for the little delay here, guys. <laughs> uh... While open plan and brutalist buildings fell out of fashion in the 1980s, they continued to be used in a variety of communities across the nation. In Washington, D.C., the situation for Dunbar and many other educational facilities constructed in the 1970s was dire. School maintenance declined in relation to declining student enrollments. By the time I began my research on Dunbar in 2006, the school was in terrible condition and harshly critiqued, particularly as plans for a new building emerged. One graduate of the 1977 Dunbar building, T. Harris, responded to a public criticism of his high school on the popular blog Ghosts of DC, underlining the school's effectiveness. I'll read this, yeah, it's a quote. Quote. (laughs) During my tenure at this building, referred to as a prison by those in opposition of it, I felt free and obtained a quality education. The open space environment did not impede my education in the least bit. The 1977 building became a prison when the idiot contractors came in and erected walls in the building. Many of the alumni who did the final walkthrough of the building were horrified by the cell block H look as a result of the wall erection and the ridiculous yellow paint. The current principal has gone on record by stating that this building was a prison, that being the, that being the case, sorry, I had a little glare going on there. That being the case, he by default was the warden and the crypt keeper. 
Harris referred to the fact that some educators at Dunbar rejected the open plan. Teachers rearranged classrooms and created barriers by strategically locating bookcases and other movable furniture. In 2009, when the private firm Friends of Bedford took control of the school, administrators erected permanent walls where none had existed before, blocking sunlight that the exterior windows afforded the interior section of the building. The 1977 version of Dunbar High School was never meant to operate as a prison. The concepts behind its design stressed flexibility, connection, and liberal pedagogy rooted in cultivating self-policing autonomy in students. Indeed, nothing about an open-plan strategy in general suggests a prison. The prison-like aspects of the design were mainly attributed to the hard, brutalist exterior that was experienced from the outside. The image of this school as a prison derived from the building's materiality, its massive shapes, and its lack of windows, a common trend toward energy-saving techniques in the 1970s. Metal detectors and other measures introduced decades later as order maintenance gained traction intensified this perception. As the case of Dunbar suggests, one way that our discipline can contribute to the project of revaluing black lives is through further research into the ways that architecture and architects help stage the pipeline and into telling of the story of alternative approaches that promoted a more liberatory vision of schooling. The interior plan of the 1977 Dunbar High School was hopeful and visionary. It afforded students an environment that broke away from the traditional model and attempted to respond to student needs. Hard policing is much more evident in the 2013 design of the school. Following national trends in the 21st century in which the ritualistic aspects of criminalizing the school environment undermine the culture of learning itself for minority students. Mm. Very interesting reading so far this week. Found it, uh, I guess we've got the pictures here along, but uh, I found it really easy to kind of place myself into these buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, there's tons of brutalist uh, institutional buildings uh, in Canada, so um, easy to understand that. Any further comments from you guys? I don't know, it's kind of nice to have something accessible to read after like the very academic readings, some of them last week. Yeah. Well, I still have Foucault one coming up. Yeah, Yeah. we've still got got Foucault, (laughs) so. It's gonna tie in neatly with this one, I imagine. Yeah. Foucault would have a field day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nice, this is excellent. Well, uh, you guys, this is this episode. Wraps it up for Two Peas in a Podcast with Shane, our lovely third P, Andrea, <laughs> uh, and Travis Cook Young. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.